Section 14 of The Flight of the Heron by D. K. Broster. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Eileen. Part 3, Chapter 3. Once more Keith Wyndham, but he was Major Wyndham now, and on General Hawley's staff, was riding towards Lochaber. This time, however, he was thankful to find himself so occupied, for it was a boon to get away from what Inverness had become since the Duke of Cumberland's victory a couple of weeks ago. A little town crammed with suffering and despair, and with men who not only gloated over the suffering, but who did their best to intensify it by neglect. One could not pass the horrible overcrowded little prison under the bridge without hearing pitiful voices always crying out for water. And as for last Sunday's costless procession of those poor wretches, in their shirts, or less, the wounded, too, carried by their comrades, simply to be jeered at. Well, Major Wyndham, feigning twinges from his wound of Fontenoy, had withdrawn, sick with disgust, from the neighborhood of the uproariously laughing Holly. And not only was he enjoying a respite, if only of a few days, from what was so repugnant to him, but he had been chosen by the Duke himself to carry a dispatch to the Earl of Albemarle at Perth, it seemed that the duke remembered a certain little incident at Fontenoy. General Hawley, relinquishing his aide-de-camp for the mission, had slapped him on the shoulder and wished him good luck. The errand seemed to promise transference to the duke's own staff, and if that should occur, it meant real advancement at last, and, when Cumberland returned to Flanders, a return with him. So Keith was in better spirits than he had been for the last week, Surely the end of this horrid Scottish business was approaching for him. Falkirk, a bitter memory, was more than avenged, for the late victory on the moor of Culloden could not have been completer. He only wished he could get out of his mind some of the details of its completion. But there was this to be said for ruthless methods of suppression, that they were the sooner finished with. To tell truth, Major Wyndham's immediate situation was also exercising his mind a good deal. Wade's road from Fort Augustus to Dulwini and Perth ran over the steep Corriaric Pass into Badenoch, and he had been told that somewhere in the neighborhood of the pass he would find a military post under a certain Major Guthrie of Campbell's regiment, in which bivouac he proposed to spend the night. There had been a time last August when Sir John Cope, with all his force, dared not risk crossing the Corriaric. It was different now. Keith had first, of course, to get to Fort Augustus, and had set out from Inverness with that intention, but about halfway there, just before the road reared itself from the levels of Whitebridge to climb to its highest elevation, he had been inexplicably tempted by a track which followed a stream up a valley to the left, and, on an impulse which now seemed to him insane, had decided to pursue this rather than the main road. His Highland orderly, a Mackay from Lord Ray's country, only too pleased, like all his race, to get off a high road, even though he was riding a shod horse, jumped at the suggestion, averring, in his not always ready English, that he knew the track to be a shorter way to the Corriaric Road. So they had ridden up that tempting corridor. It was a most unwise proceeding. At first all had gone well, but by this time it was clear to Keith that he and his orderly, if not lost, were within measurable distance of becoming so. The original track had ceased, the stream had divided, and they knew not which branch to follow. 
and either only seemed to take them higher and higher towards its source. Bare and menacing, the mountainsides closed in more and more straightly upon the foolhardy travellers. The Highlander was a fuse as a pioneer, but Keith had expected him to be a guide, whereas it soon appeared that he had no qualifications for the post, never having been in these parts before, despite his confident assertion of an hour ago. Every now and then they were obliged to lead their horses, and they were continually making detours to avoid boggy ground. Keith trudged on silent with annoyance at his own folly, his orderly, voluble in assurances that herself need not be alarmed. There were worse places than this in Sutherland, yet Dougal, the son of Dougal, had never lost himself. It was hard to believe that it was the first of May, so cold was it. Not only were the surrounding mountains capped with snow, but it lay in all the creases of the northern slopes to quite a low level. There were even patches not far above the route which the travellers were painfully making out for themselves. And it was actually a pocket of snow in a sort of overhanging hollow some way off to their left, a little above them, which drew Keith's eyes in that direction. Then he saw, to his surprise, that there was a figure with a plaid drawn over its head sitting in the hollow. A woman, apparently. He called Mackay's attention to it at once. Ask her if she can tell us the best way to the Corriaric Road. The Highlander shouted out something in his own tongue, but there was no answer, and the woman huddled in her plaid, which completely hid her face, did not move. Ah, she will be asleep, whatever, observed Mackay. Aven, woman, woman. But another thought had struck the Englishman. Tossing the reins of his horse to Mackay, he strode up to the hollow where the woman sat, and, stooping, laid a hand on her shoulder. For any warmth that struck through the tartan, he might as well have touched the rock against which she leant. He gave an exclamation, and, after a moment, drew the folds of the plaid a little apart. If the young woman who sat crouched within it, stiff now, like the year-old child in her arms, knew the way anywhere, it was not to the pass of Coriaric. There was a little wreath of half-melted snow in a cranny near her head. It was no whiter than her face. The upper half of her body was almost naked, for she had stripped herself to wrap all she could round the little bundle which she was still clasping tightly to her breast. But it was only a bundle now, with one tiny, rigid waxen hand emerging to show what it had been. Keith removed his three-cornered hat and signed to Mackay to leave the horses and come. The poor woman is dead, he said in a hushed voice, has been dead for some time. Can she have met with an accident? I think she will have been starved, said his orderly, looking at the pinched face. I have heard that there are many women wandering in the hills of Lochaber and Barnoch, and there is no food, and it has been very cold. But why should she have gone wandering like this, with her child, too? The Mackay turned surprised eyes upon him. Because you English from Fort William will have burnt her house and perhaps killed her man, he replied bluntly. Then she was going trying to find shelter for herself and the wean. And now there is no one to streak her and to lay the platter of salt on her breast. It is a pity. He, too, with the innate reverence of his race for the dead, was standing bareheaded. I wish we could bury them, said Keith. But it was out of the question. They had neither the implements nor the time. Indeed, but for the food that they carried and their horses— the same end might almost be awaiting them in these solitudes.
So Mackay replaced the plaid, and they went silently back to the horses and continued their journey. You English, we English, have done this. We whose boast it has always been that we do not war with women and children. We English whose vengeance, Keith had realized it, ere this, is edged by the remembrance of past panic, of the disgrace of Prestonpans and Falkirk and invasion. He went on his way with the sensation of being branded. Yes, he had been too true a prophet. The comedy had turned to grim and bloody earnest. And, despite relief and natural exhilaration at victory, of which there was not much left in him now, despite the liberation of his native country from a menace which she affected to despise, but which in the end had terrified her, despite the vindication, at last, of the worth of trained troops, Keith Wyndham could say with all his heart, Would God we were back in the days of farce! Yes, even in the days when last he was in Lochaber, for the very mortification of the rout at Highbridge last summer, and of his subsequent captivity, had been easier to bear than the feeling that he belonged now to a band of executioners, who was indeed closely connected with the most brutal of them all. He had been gratified when Hawley, on his arrival at Edinburgh, had, on Preston's recommendation, chosen him to fill a vacancy on his staff. But during the last two weeks he had come to loathe the position. Yet his ambitious regard for his own career forbade him to damage it by asking permission to resign his post. Indeed, had he taken such a remarkable step, he would not now be on his way to Perth, having turned his back for a while on what had so sickened him. Another half-hour passed, and the memories which had been sweeping like dark clouds over Keith's mind began to give way to a real sensation of alarm, not so much for his personal safety as for the carrying out of his mission. Suppose they did not find their way before nightfall, out of this accursed maze into which he had so blindly ventured. He consulted anew with Mackay, and they resolved to abandon the line which they had been taking, and try instead to find a way over a spur on their right, for the mountain which sent it forth was neither craggy nor strewn with scree, and the slope of the spur was such that it was even possible to make use of their horses. At the worst, its summit would give them a view, and they might then be able to strike out a better route for themselves. As Keith was putting his foot in the stirrup, Dougal Mackay caught his arm and said excitedly, I was hearing a shout, sir. I heard nothing, responded Major Wyndham, listening. Where did it come from? The orderly pointed ahead. The men that shouted will be round the other side of this bine. Let us make haste, sir. Praying that the Highlander was not mistaken, Keith scrambled into the saddle, and his horse began to strain up the slope. He himself could hear nothing but the melancholy notes of a disturbed plover, which was wheeling not far above their heads, and he cursed the bird for drowning more distant sounds. Then, sharp through the mournful cry, there did come a sound, the crack of a shot, of two shots, and the mountains re-echoed with it. For a moment both Keith and his orderly instinctively checked their horses, then Keith struck spurs into his, and in a few minutes the panting beast had carried him to the top of the shoulder, and he had his view. Directly before him rose another mountainside, much greener than the rest, and this greenness extended downwards into the almost level depression between it and the slope whose summit he had now reached. Below him, in this narrow upland valley, stood a small group of rough huts for use when the cattle were driven up to the summer pasture, 
and in front of these was drawn up a body of redcoats, to whom a mounted officer was shouting orders. On the ground near the entrance of the largest ceiling lay a motionless highlander. The shots thus explained themselves. The soldiers were at their usual work, and Keith had ridden into the midst of it. He felt weariness and disgust, but he needed direction too badly not to be glad to meet with those who could give it. Presumably the detachment was from the post on Wade's Road, and the officer might even be Major Guthrie himself. Hoping that the worst was now over, he rode slowly down the hillside through the bloomless heather, unnoticed by the group below. The fern-thatched roof of one of the sheilings had already been fired, and to its first cracklings Keith realized with distaste that the butchery was not yet finished. Three or four scarlet-clad figures came out of the hut, before which the dead man lay, half carrying, half dragging another highlander, alive, but evidently wounded. The officer pointed, and they followed the usual summary method in such cases, and, after planting him against the dry stone wall of the building itself, withdrew, leaving him face to face with the firing party. But, apparently, their victim could not stand unsupported. For a moment or so after they had retired, he slid to one knee, and then to the ground. Detestable, said Major Wyndham to himself. He had recognized the tartan now, the one of all others that he would never mistake, for he had worn it himself, the Cameron. But that did not surprise him. The doomed Highlander was now struggling to his feet again. He gained them unaided, and, steadying himself with one hand against the wall behind him, stood once more upright, so tall that his head was well above the edge of the low thatch. Now Keith was near enough to see the lower end of a dirty bandage round his left thigh, and the whole of another on his sword-arm, for all that he had upon him was a kilt and a ragged shirt. And, "'Good God!' exclaimed the Englishman aloud, and calling out at the top of his voice, "'Stop! Stop!' he drove the spurs into his horse, came slithering down the last part of the slope, raced towards the sheiling, leapt off, and, holding up his hand. But all faces were now turned towards him, ran in between the already levelled muskets and Ewan Cameron. Ewan alone had not seen him. His face was the colour of the wall behind him. His eyes were half-closed, his teeth set in his lower lip, and it was plain that only his force of will was keeping him upright there. A tiny trickle of blood was beginning to course down his bare leg. And even the blind instinct to face death standing could keep him there no longer. For the second time he swayed, and the wounded leg gave way under him again. But this time Keith's arms caught him as he sank. Oblivious of the stupefaction which had descended upon the soldiers, and of the more than stupefaction manifested by the officer behind them, Keith lowered that dead weight to the ground and knelt beside it. In Ardroy's gaunt face a line of white showed under the closed lids, and Keith's hand pressed on the torn shirt found a heartbeat so faint that he thought, he was dying when they dragged him out, the brutes. Perhaps he had not been in time, after all. He remembered that there was brandy in his holster, and looked up with an idea of summoning Mackay. "'Am I to take you for a surgeon, sir?' he inquired, in a strong lowland accent, and in a tone compounded of hot rage and cold. "'If so, and you'll have the kindness to shift yourself out of the way for a minute, there'll be no further need of your services.' 
Keith laid Ewan's head down on the grass and, standing up, regarded the rider, a neat, fair-complexioned Scot of about five and forty, with little light eyes under sandy brows. "'Major Guthrie, I think,' he suggested, and saluted him. "'I am Major Keith Wyndham of the Royals, on General Hawley's staff, and now on my way with dispatches from His Royal Highness to Perth.' Oh, "'I care little if you have dispatches from God himself,' retorted Major Guthrie, with increasing fury. "'And this is not Perth. Hard away from yon wall, unless you've a fancy to be shot too.' But Keith did not move. "'This is not a common Highlander, sir.' he said, as calmly as he could. He is an officer, despite his dress. For officers, as Major Guthrie must know, were not shot in cold blood. Now. What's that to me? inquired Guthrie. He turned. Here, you sumphs, pit him up afore the wall again. Two of the men made an undecided move forwards, but the sight of this other officer, of equal rank, standing so resolutely in front of the prostrate Highlander, daunted them. But listen, Major Guthrie, pleaded Keith, keeping a tight hold upon his own rapidly rising temper and disgust. This gentleman is really of more than ordinary importance, for he was at one time aide-de-camp to the pretender's son, and he is Lochiel's near kinsman. Some kind of cousin, I think. You surely would not. Lochiel's near kinsman, did you say? interrupted Guthrie, bending down a little. How is he called? Cameron of Ardroy a captain in Lochiel's regiment. I'm sure, went on Keith, eager to follow up the impression which Lochiel's name appeared to have made. I'm sure you will recognize, Major, that the Duke would not wish him to be shot out of hand like this. Indeed, I'm obliged to you, Major somebody or other, for so kindly instructing His Royal Highness's wishes to me, retorted the lowlander. But he bent still farther from the saddle, and gazed down for a moment at what was lying so still by the wall at the dirty, blood-stained, half-clothed figure which Keith had last seen so gallant in powder and satin, cool, smiling, and triumphant. The plea he had offered, the only plea that he could think of, was it going to save you and Cameron from lying there stiller yet? He tried to read Guthrie's intentions on his face, but all that he could see there was its innate meanness and cruelty. The saddle creaked as the rider came upright again. He looked down at Keith himself now, with eyes that seemed to hold a flickering light. "'This is God's truth, you're telling me, that yon,' he pointed contemptuously, "'is Lochiel's cousin.' "'Yes, on my honour as an officer.' "'And may I spare how you ken it?' "'Because I've met him before. "'I assure you, sir, that if they knew at Inverness,' This is no more Inverness than it is Perth, Major Keith. I'm acting here on my own authority, and if yon lousy rebel lying there had the Duke's own protection on him, I would not regard it if I thought fit. Still and on, I'm well aware that as Lochiel's near kinsman, he may be of more value alive than dead. We shall see of how much in a day or two. Aye, I doubt they'll be wishing they had him at Inverness. But you cannot send him all the way to Inverness, protested Keith, rather alarmed. He's evidently badly wounded. Ill. He dropped on one knee beside Ewan again. Guthrie gave a short laugh. Did I say I was going to? You won't take me for a fool, Major. Findings keepings, as they say. But devil kens, he added, suddenly dismounting, 
how I'm to transport the man even to my own camp, the Nicht. I've nothing to carry him on, and I dinner shall lose. Here he too came and stooped over the unconscious figure. Aye, he's not for sitting a horse, that's plain. I'm thinking I'll even have to leave him here till the morn, and send down a party with a litter. There's one thing, he added coolly, raising himself with a shrug of his shoulders. He'll not run away, and there's nobody left about the place. Aye, that's what I'll do. You're going to leave him here alone, all night, in this state, exclaimed Keith, loosing the almost pulseless wrist. Guthrie stared angrily at him. Upon my soul, Major, are you expecting a spittle on Ben Loy? For a man on Hawley's staff, your uncle tender to a rebel. If I cannot take the prisoner with me, I have no choice but to leave him here. Unless you'd prefer me to blow his horns out, after all. It's none too late for it yet, you can. And he laid a hand on one of his own pistols. No, you're quite right, sir, said Keith hastily, almost humbly. I see that you can do nothing else but leave him till the morning. Sergeant, called out Major Guthrie, bid the prisoner bend the house again, and dinner fire yon sheiling. Now, Major Keith, in payment for the good turn you've done me, I'll have the pleasure of offering you hospitality for the nicht, and setting you on the ricked road for Perth, which you're not on the now, you can. I'm much beholden to you, sir, replied Keith stiffly, but I'm not aware of having laid you under any obligation. Guthrie raised his sandy eyebrows. Are you not? Well, you may be richt. We'll see. We'll see. Aye, sergeant, fire the lave of them. We mauna leave any beeld for the rebels. The thatch of the next chilling, going up with a roar, lit sharply the uniforms of the men, who, roughly enough, lifted Ardroy from the ground, and, staggering a little, for he was no lightweight, disappeared with him round the corner of the miserable little dwelling. And biting his lip, Keith watched them go, and then Mackay brought up his horse, restive at the flames. The men came out again. "'Well, Major, are you not satisfied?' asked Guthrie, already back in the saddle. "'Satisfied? No. But he was on such dangerous ground. This man's mercy, if so it could be called, was like a bog. At any moment there might be no more foothold.' a little more pressing for better treatment, and he would have Ardroy shot out of mere spite. Keith was sure of it. But, left alone, scarcely breathing. And in what condition had you and been left in there? I'll ride after you in a moment, sir, he said. You see, I'm under a sort of obligation to this young Cameron. I'll just go in and leave him my brandy flask. Really, Major Guthrie of Campbell's regiment had the most unpleasant eyes he had ever encountered. As you will, sir, he returned. I doubt he'll not be able to thank you. But I advise you not to be over long with him, for I cannot wait, and tis for me to warn you this time that the Duke will not be very pleased if you lose the way to Perth again. He turned his horse. Keith took the flask out of his holster, said a word to Mackay, and went round to the door of the shieling. It was Neil McMartin who lay shot, not far from the entrance. Keith recognized him instantly. No doubt it was only over his dead body that they had been able to get at his wounded foster brother. Inside the tiny place it was so dark that for a moment Keith could hardly see anything. Then, by a sudden red glow from without, 
he distinguished Ewan's body in the far corner, on a heap of something which proved to be dried fern and heather. The soldiers had flung him back there with little regard for his wounds or for the coming cold of night. But there was a plaid lying in a heap on the floor. Keith picked this up and spread it over him. Ardroy was still senseless, but when Keith tried to arrange him more comfortably, he moaned, yet it was only the faintest trickle of brandy which the Englishman could get down his throat. He desisted finally, for fear of choking him, and closed his cold, nerveless hand round the flask instead. Looking about, he saw not a trace of food nor even of water, though there was an overturned bowl on the floor. He hurried out with this to the burn which he had noticed, filled it, and placed it within reach. But it seemed rather a mockery, now that the only hand which might have held it to you and Cameron's lips was lifeless outside. Had he done Ardroy a kindness, after all, in saving him from the volley? Mackay was in the doorway. The redcoats is all gone, Major. I'm not seeing them now. Keith jumped up. His duty came before an enemy's plight, whatever were his feelings towards that enemy. He could do no more. The leaping flames outside had died down to mere incandescence, and the dead man and the senseless were left in possession of the darkening hollow where the burn's voice, babbling on in protest or unconcern, was now the only sound to break the silence. End of section 14